From Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. This is the 10-year anniversary of the Grok's Science Show. That's right, it's our look back at 10 years of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, we'll be looking at where the show's been, where we are, and where we're going. So stay tuned for all of this. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad. How about you, Charles? I'm I'm feeling especially happy. 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 Are you getting lucky? Well, not not uh, in that way. Oh, what a night, you know. But Uh uh, (laughs) in fact, it's a very special day for us. I believe it is. It is our second anniversary. Our second year anniversary on the air here. Two years, and we're still alive. Two years, and uh, apparently no one has uh, stormed the gates to uh, stop science truth from being broadcast over the air. I thought we were the, the uh, afterglow of the Big Bang. Welcome back to Crocs. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Isn't this our third anniversary? Wow, it is our third anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Happy anniversary. You know what? Religions will fail before we do. <laughs> I always thought that Grox was a religion. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're a religion without any cult followers. <laughs> Just a supreme vision, right? What is that vision? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Welcome back to Box. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome. Is that right? Awesome yeah. this week. Why is that? We're four years old. You know, I don't feel like a day over three, but <laughs> happy birthday, happy anniversary. It was an accident, right? <laughs> What's that? Did someone forget to uh, use protection? I think it was the station, really, that forgot to use the protection. Oh, right. Welcome back to Perky Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome. It's uh, a very special day here, right? It, it, it is indeed a special day, and uh, it's not that day that George Bush is finally out of office, but <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is indeed a fine day. Yes, five years. Five years. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, isn't that longer than a lot of marriages, actually? <laughs> kind of get up to that seven-year mark, and all of a sudden it starts to break down, but Uh-oh. yeah. <laughs> we got to be careful there. <laughs> Welcome back to Brooklyn Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of celebration. Celebration? <laughs> I feel like a winner, man. Don't you? Know, you? Well, I feel like an older man. Really? As if time has passed by and marked a certain turning point in our lives. Most kids when they're six can uh, run around, speak intelligible English, but I'm still mumbling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to get the basics of my bodily functions together, so... <laughs> well, you don't use divers, right? <laughs> I don't wear pants either, so it doesn't matter. Efficient, I must say. Yeah, well... <laughs> if anyone's wondering, this is our sixth anniversary, right? Wow, six years on the air. Wow, six years I've known you, <laughs> plus a little more, I guess. Happy anniversary? <laughs> Happy anniversaries. High five. <laughs> High five. There you go. <laughs> that officially marks the six-year anniversary mark, that high five. Yes. Uh, it should actually be a high six, I guess, really. Oh, yeah. We'll do a high one to make right. up for it. That was, that was a one, in case you heard that. So, Welcome back to Big Rocks. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good. Are we up to the next president yet? It feels like we should be. I know, man. I've been waiting so long. <laughs> 
In fact, my sole purpose in life really is just to wait out this president. In fact, our whole show has been overshadowed by the same president. I know. Right? We, we started at the same time as the president, and damn it, if we're not going to outrun his presidency. <laughs> Many of the time, I would have liked to throw in the towel with the show, but damn it, we have to beat Bush. One more year, huh? One more year. But congratulations, by the way, on another year of a fine show. Congratulations, Charles. It's, it's exactly seven years, right? It's exactly seven years since we started this travesty of nature. <laughs> and to all our listeners out there, we can only apologize profusely. <laughs> I thought nobody was listening. Oh, that's And of course, it'll be proven because as soon as this airs, we'll get absolutely no congratulatory letters of our seven-year anniversary. <laughs> anyway, congratulations. High five. Hey, high five. High five. Welcome back to the program. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Kind of old, actually. It feels like we've been doing this show forever. Yeah, exactly. Nine years, in fact. Who knew nine years could feel like forever? But spending that time with you has been the best time of my life, Frank. <laughs> hey, thanks, Charles. It's lasted longer than I don't know what could last that long these days. <laughs> hey, I, have, I still have my Atari 2600. I'm going to ask if you wanted to trade games or something. <laughs> what, you got the Nintendo? <laughs> No, I've got like I've got Yars Revenge for the twenty six hundred. Whoa. Okay, so you you've been keeping all these years. <laughs> It is our nine-year anniversary. Uh, it's nine years since we started doing this program. And, hey, congratulations, uh, Charles. Congratulations, Frank. Hopefully nine more years to come. Hey, then I'll be an adult. Almost legally, in fact. <laughs> All right, and here we are now. It's been ten years since we started this program, The Grok Science Show, uh, originally back in Berkeley, California, in our early days as uh, graduate students. So it's been a wild ride up to now, and hope there's ten years uh, left in the future for uh, the program. And we, of course, thank all of loyal listeners, you out there, who've uh, continued to listen to our program and support us. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, on today's program, what we'd like to do is just go back, take a look at some of our favorite interviews. Of course, I have to thank all of our uh, guests that we've had over the years for coming out of the program and really making what it is, uh, the interviews that really make the program special. By and large, what we found is that there are a few topics that really have come back over and over again, and probably the, the first one that we that we continue to be amazed by, not so much because it's a, a strange science topic, and in fact, quite the opposite. It's in fact, perhaps uh, the fundamental topic of biology, and that is really the topic of evolution. And over 10 years, we've done numerous shows on evolution, having several guests on the program to explain evolution, talk about evolution. Uh, most recently, Richard Dawkins on the program to explain evolution. And you would think that after 10 years and uh, all this time that uh, pretty much the message would hopefully have gotten through that in fact evolution is true. But here we are continuing to do shows on evolution and we are certainly surprised that we continue to have to do so, but uh, we will continue to make it our mission to make sure that uh, this very important concept is uh, at least understood out in the public. One of our favorite interviews from uh, on this particular topic was actually done here in Chicago with Professor Jerry Coyne, who wrote a book, Why Evolution is True, and uh, what follows is a brief excerpt uh, from that interview, which originally aired February 11th, 2009. Here it is, uh, Professor Jerry Coyne talking about why evolution is true. And there's all this evidence supporting evolution. Why do you think a debate still exists about evolution? Well, there's really only one reason. As you said, there's so much evidence for evolution, at least as much evidence as that the Earth goes around the sun. Um, there's no scientific reason to doubt it. The reason that people go after it is, well, for two reasons. Um, the overriding one is that it attacks their sense of self, their importance in the world as a species, and that connects with the second reason, which is basically religion. Religion, particularly of the fundamentalist or revelatory type, tells us that humans are the special product of God's intervention in nature and that we're like the supreme animal 
And evolution tells us the exact opposite, that we're the product of random and blind forces, just like squirrels or trees or anything like that. And so it attacks our sort of specialness as humans. And people don't like that very much and for a number of reasons. Um, they're solipsistic reasons, but also they think that it may rob them of ethics and morality if they're just a product of natural selection. And really, this is the reason why things like intelligent design and creation science have pushed into science classroom. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's pure religion. I've only met, I think, in all the hundreds and hundreds of creationists I've met in my life, only one of them has not been a religious person. So it's intimately connected with religion. And as the courts have ruled repeatedly, idea and creationism cannot be taught in the schools because it's simply a disguised form of religion. It violates the First Amendment. Yeah, this still persists in this uh, argument that uh, you need to present a balanced view of things in the classroom. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the argument that the creationists have reverted to. It used to be that we want to teach our stuff about creation in the schools. The courts ruled that out. So now it's a balanced view. Actually, it's that we want to address the criticisms of evolution. And it sort of appeals to the American sense of fair play that why not teach the kids all the going theories and let them sort it out themselves. But you have to think a little bit more deeply than that. It's equivalent to saying to medical students that you have to study Christian science and shamanism as well as Western medicine, and you can sort that out. Or you can teach psychology students astrology as an alternative theory of human behavior, let the students sort it out, you know, teach flat earthism because there's a few flat earthers, and teach the fact that the Holocaust might not have happened in history classes because there's a whole lot of Holocaust scenarios out there. Let the students sort it out. I mean, the fallacy of that is that we already have a received and well-accepted opinion that's supported by a lot of evidence, just as much evidence as the fact that the Holocaust happened. And there's simply no reason to confuse people by presenting an ill-founded alternative. Perhaps some of the confusion actually just exists because a lot of people might not have a very clear idea of just exactly what is evolution. Yeah, that's the reason I wrote the book, actually. Mm -hmm. There is a segment of the populace that is either somewhat opposed to evolution because they don't know what it is or they're on the fence about it and they sort of don't want to go over to that side because they think it's attached to all these repellent ideas. I wrote the book because I hoped, and in fact I know there are some people out there that simply don't know the tremendous amount of evidence that exists supporting evolution, not just from fossils, but from all kinds of areas of biology. And I wanted to sort of put that together in an accessible, popular volume that was comprehensible to somebody who wasn't a biologist. Well, I, I think it certainly is that. Maybe we could attempt then an explanation of just exactly what is evolution. Well, it's more than one thing. I guess in the book I divide it up into five or six different aspects, some of which are interconnected, others not. The most important one is evolution, of course, that evolution happened. That is, the organisms living today are not the same ones that lived earlier, but they're the descendants of those. Second part is that the mechanism for that change is largely natural selection. So those are two different assertions. You can have evolution happening, but some other process than selection causing it. There's splitting of lineages that produces the great branching tree of life. So the original one species that was the ancestor of us all has branched into the 50 or 60 million on Earth today. And if you trace those twigs back, you get the idea of common ancestry, that is, that Every pair of species, no matter how different, has a common ancestor somewhere in the past, so-called missing link, if you will. And finally, that the evolutionary change is gradual in, in the sense that it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over periods of hundreds, thousands, or millions of years. So all those things together form a sort of mixed pot. And we call it Darwinism, and actually those are all things that Darwin suggested. But evolution has moved on a long way since Darwin, so it's probably better to use the term modern evolutionary theory. 
than Darwinism. So. All right. so this is the modern evolutionary theory. What is the evidence supporting the modern evolutionary well, theory? Well, that's what my book is about. I mean, it would take me hours and hours to sit here. I'll just say that it's drawn from... Besides, of course, the continuing controversy surrounding evolution, the continued great scientific controversy that can of global climate change. And of course, through the years, we've had the pleasure of interviewing several scientists about the effects of global climate change. The following is one of our favorite interviews with Professor Steven Schneider, in which he talks about the impact of man-made climate change, in particular as a contributing factor to the Katrina disaster in New Orleans. This interview originally aired February 2006. We had the recent Hurricane Katrina tragedy, and uh, a lot of us believe it is a wake-up call to address uh, the issues with energy use and global warming. Uh, but at the same time, we hear people like Patrick Michaels and Fox News challenging these um, well-established beliefs in the scientific community. Uh, what's the best way for citizens to meet these challenges and to address these issues in a rational manner? The New Orleans catastrophe was inevitable. It had been forecast many, many times, and in fact, the stories are starting to come out now about various city officials and state officials, engineers and others, who were warning, we've got to build these levees higher. They're designed for a Category 3 hurricane. What if we had a 4 or a 5? Uh, and they were blown off by those people who were more interested in cutting taxes to the top-end rich Americans than they are in protecting the... How do you deal with the people uh, who say, this isn't true? Yeah, or circumstantial. Listen to the President of the United States. When you hear his press conference and when the storm first happened, he said, this is just a horrible, and he stopped and he said, natural, and he went on, disaster. Uh, in other words, there's absolutely no human culpability, uh, either in terms of inadequate uh, preparation for the natural variability, or as Carl was saying, the fact that uh, we may have souped the hurricane up. Remember, we don't make hurricanes. Nature makes hurricanes. We don't make droughts. We don't make floods. But we can intensify the extreme events because the warm water is thermodynamically the driver behind hurricanes. So when you warm it up, all of the conditions being equal, which they're not going to be all the time, but once in a while they are, you're going to get more top-end storms, not necessarily more storms. So some elements of this storm, you can lay at the doorstep of the one degree Fahrenheit warming that's been brought about in the last century, most of which in the last couple of decades, uh, and it undoubtedly increased the intensity of the storm a little bit, whether it was 1% or 3 or 4, we'll never know, we'll fight. In other words, was it one foot on the storm surge or five that we're responsible for? You know, one foot, well, not much. Five might be the difference between it having gone over the levee and not. So why should we be making our footprint deeper and deeper and our impact on nature louder and louder without trying to slow it down? Makes no sense. It's not a sustainable philosophy. And unfortunately, the current administration, what I call the climate monkeys, hear no, see no, and speak no climate because it's inconvenient to their former buddies in the oil industry and the coal industry and who make the big cars, and they don't want to make cuts. Well, if you want to play the blame game, there's some to go around everywhere. I'll start with us, with the scientists. Scientists uh, get promoted on the basis of discovering original ideas and overthrowing old doctrine. They don't get uh, promoted and, and famous by repeating what's well understood and well established. Unfortunately, when the world cares about what we do and they listen in with ears called journalists, and we jump right to the cutting edge and everybody fights, they think nobody knows anything. We're in constant contention, whereas, in fact, there's this large body of shared information that nobody bothers to summarize 
surprised. Then when we write a report from the National Research Council and we say, oh, well, all the scientists except one or two strollers you know, who are funded by the oil industry uh, agree that global warming is real, that humans are responsible for at least half of it, they say, that's not possible. All you ever do is fight. That's in our culture. Now let's go to the media. Next blame. Uh, an honest journalist covering political area correctly get the Democrat, get the Republican. It's absolutely right. It's called balance. But what happens in science? There aren't two sides. It's not the end of the world versus good for you. There's multiple positions. And what science does when it's working well is it winnows out the relative likelihood of each of these multiple positions. So if you dumb this down to end of the world and good for you and you put that out, the public is going to think, well, the scientists don't know. How can I know? So let's just wait and see. There are a lot of people very well paid to convey that false impression because otherwise if we had rules that would hurt their, their return on investment and they've got a president and especially a vice president who they've got in their back pocket on this issue and as a result they are climate monkeys and see no, hear no, and speak no climate. In the other place is public education. How much of public education is teach the test? Truth comes from the front of the room. Uh, you're in edu why are you in school? Well, to make plastic wheels for the economic engine. How about to learn how to be creative thinkers, to deconstruct a phony argument? Most of what we hear is garbage out there anyway. You have to learn how to see through it. That involves loving debate, enjoying catching error, but not, not in a gleeful way, but in a way that people enjoy the, the the engagement and don't fall for garbage. One of the great things about doing this program is that as scientists ourselves, we are fascinated by the scientific method and the scientific process. And in particular, what is it that inspires the scientists, the great ones, to come up with their ideas and what drives them? We've had on the program several great authors looking at the lives of the great scientists that have contributed and built up the large body of scientific knowledge that we have in all fields of science, from chemistry, biology, astronomy, physics. And of course, we're fascinated by the lives of all these scientists. But if you stop the man on the street and ask them what they can name, one great scientist, it of course has to be Albert. Einstein. We were fortunate enough to have on the program Professor John Stachel, director of the Center for Einstein Studies. What follows is our interview with Professor Stachel from November 6th, 2005. Certainly edited, a, I think, a very fascinating book, Einstein's Miraculous Year. If you could give a, a sense of just how miraculous, how amazing this, his achievement was during this year. Well, maybe I'll disappoint you, but <laughs> I don't think it was the most miraculous oh, okay. year in Einstein's life, actually. Yeah. I think his work on the general theory of relativity culminating in, at the end of 1915 was the most miraculous mm. accomplishment. Einstein's miraculous year in 1905 was a year in which he suddenly appeared from nowhere mm. and made a place for himself on the face of theoretical physics. Mm. But this made him well known in the physics community within the next few years. But it wasn't until his work on the general theory of relativity culminating in the final formulation of the theory at the end of 1915 and then the confirmation of his prediction of the bending of light of starlight that passed near the sun's limbs that Einstein became a public figure and known outside of the physics community. That didn't take place until 1919. Mm, I see. But many of his papers that he did write during those years eventually led to his Nobel Prize and then another Nobel Prize for another person. Yes, that's true. His accomplishments could be divided into three main groups. First of all, he continued classical physics. It's a myth that he was entirely a revolutionary figure. One of his greatest accomplishments was to continue to complete the development of classical physics. Mm. The second group of papers was, again, an attempt to resolve the problems that had arisen in trying to combine classical physics, which was basically a mechanistic view of the universe, mm. with classical electrodynamics, Maxwell's theory. Mm. 
And the attempts to do this on the basis of the Newtonian views of space and time proved impossible. And Einstein therefore had to develop a new conception of time primarily, and then from that, new views about space. And this was his work on the specialty of relativity, which resolved the apparent contradictions between mechanics and electrodynamics. I see. But the only work of his in 1905 that he himself described as very revolutionary was his work on the quantum theory. Mm. In this paper, he went beyond Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light, that light is a classical wave, to the viewpoint that there's a particulate or particle aspect mm. to light. And he called it at that time the light quantum. Mm. And w what he showed was rather limited at that time. He showed that in a certain range of frequencies, mm -hmm. a high frequency limit, light behaved as if it were composed of a series of statistically independent particles. Mm -hmm. But he was very cautious because he realized that light could not be simply a classical right. gas of particles. And indeed, it was only 20 years later that the quantum mechanical theory of gas was mm -hmm. developed and could treat the photon as not a classical gas of particles, but quantum mechanical gas of particles. Mm -hmm. But this work on uh, showing that one had to go beyond Maxwell's theory of light and electromagnetism in general to a quantum theory of light was the beginning of uh, the true quantum revolution, mm -hmm. which a as of 1905, Einstein already recognized as something quite revolutionary. And he was the first person to say that not only classical electromagnetic theory, but classical mechanics would have to be modified to take into account of these new quantum phenomena, mm -hmm. which he pointed the finger at as uh, the truly revolutionary development mm -hmm. of 1905. Wow. You're a physicist, but I'm curious, how did you actually become interested in, in Einstein in particular and directing the Center for Einstein Studies? I became interested in Einstein in the 1950s. Hmm. I both was interested in his scientific work. Hmm. As a young high school student, I started to read about theoretical physics mm -hmm. and came across the name of Einstein, obviously, mm -hmm. and started to think about his ideas. But I also respect him greatly as a political and social figure at that mm -hmm. time. This was the time of McCarthyism in America. Mm -hmm. Not Gene McCarthy, but the Senator McCarthy from Wisconsin, who was trying to introduce witch hunting in the country. And Einstein was one of the few intellectuals who stood with moral principles, mm -hmm. with a backbone, I would mm -hmm. say, and said, no, you must refuse to cooperate right. with inquisitions, witch hunts, and not on the basis of the Fifth Amendment, but on the basis of the First Amendment, that Congress or any other body has no right to pry into the personal political opinions of any individual. Mm -hmm. And if you have to go to jail for that, Einstein said, so be it. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to go to jail for that purpose. And that was a great inspiration to people like myself on the left who were <laughs> so upset to see how many intellectuals were caving into the pressures right. on them at that time. Right. So I came to revere Einstein both as a scientist and as a political and social figure. And I'm afraid today we have need, again, of moral examples like Einstein's mm -hmm. when we see how many intellectuals are caving into the pressures at a time, and again, when America is being led on a path of militarism mm -hmm. and a path of uh, violations of our civil liberties. Mm -hmm. The kind of things, incidentally, which Einstein warned about as early as 1947, mm -hmm. right after the end of the Second World War, mm -hmm. beginning of the Cold War, Einstein wrote an article on American militarism, which he foresaw the possibility that we would get into a stage where we would have preventive wars, uh, violations of civil liberties, all of this being tolerated by people because it was done in the name of fighting some sort of vague threat. Right. That time it was Bolshevism, communism. Mm -hmm. Today it's international terrorism. Right. Well, everybody's against terrorism, but some of us are against state terrorism, <laughs> not only <laughs> terrorism by individuals, but terrorism by the state. And to fight terrorism by another form of state terrorism is just creating yes. not only an error, but mm -hmm. more terror. Indeed. And I think Einstein is a great example for us of moral courage in calling the shots as we see them mm -hmm. and trying to fight for the kind of America we want to see. And of course, Einstein was also well known for his sense of humor, and longtime listeners of the program will know that we here on the Grok Science Show certainly like to have a lot of fun with science. If science weren't fun, we wouldn't be doing it. And we've been having fun with science uh, from the very beginning, from making fun of the everyday science lady to, of course, the question of the week and the Grokatron 5000 segments. Listeners will know that we certainly like to take science in a bit of stride. 
We also like to play around with uh, some of the guests that we have on the program, and uh, not always directly related to science, but usually something fun in science. And this week we're particularly happy that something amazing happened in the world of science that was particularly fun. Our alma mater, Caltech, which had gone 26 years, 26 years without winning a conference game in basketball, had finally won. They finally won first game in 26 years. Congratulations to the Beavers for that victory. So the following interview is with documentary filmmaker Rick Greenwald, who, who produced a documentary film called Quantum Hoops, in which he documented the then only 23-year quest to win a conference game. We can think of no greater event to celebrate our 10-year anniversary than the basketball team of our alma mater finally winning a conference game. This interview originally aired March 12, 2008. You know, what piqued your interest about a group of, you know, so-called nerds who, uh, got into the, the sports game. You know, I guess the, the main thing with this team is the fact that um, they happen to have a 21-year losing streak. It's a 240-straight game conference losing streak dating back to 1985. And that sort of piqued my interest right away. The fact that you can tack on the so-called the, the nerd thing, like you're saying, uh, makes it a little more unbelievable, which is, which is really saying that these guys are the smartest, uh, some of the smartest uh, math and science kids in the entire country, and they also happen to play basketball, and unfortunately they uh, um, lose all the time, but I thought that would make it really colorful, and, and you know, honestly, the, the original thought was that it was kind of humorous, and the cool thing was it is humorous, but once you get involved in the story, um, it's a whole lot more than, than, you know, the obvious kind of comedy angle that people just assume, you know, like a lot of bloopers and bad basketball, but um, there's a lot of heart and character to um, what goes on there. So I just want to add my own anecdote since I myself was an undergrad at mm-hmm. Caltech, and you know I remember we were uh, we were very proud of our team even though we had not won at all. And I, I just remember you know during dinner we had these announcements where some member of the team or one of the sports enthusiasts would be you know really proudly you know talking about what was going on, and you know it was just very heartening to know that even though very likely that we were not going to win, there was just so much enthusiasm. I thought that was just one of the, you know, the best things about my experience there. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's, there's a, a bit of a beauty, and, and um, um, part of that is the, the, you know, the purity of Caltech sports. Um, and, it, and it is great that, that people in the um, Caltech community do support the sports teams because, by and large, most of them lose and lose badly. So the fact that people... <laughs> You know, can get out and really say, you know, I mean, the players don't play to have a close game necessarily. They do play to win, which kind of surprises people. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice the community can look over their shoulder and go, hey, great. Um, I think part of the pride that, that comes in is knowing that every single athlete there is a true student athlete. Uh-huh. They, they weren't recruited and given scholarships because Caltech doesn't <laughs> offer athletic scholarships. They're only there because they got into Caltech. And I think um, you know, at some schools, it, that's not always the case. Some of the, the true scholars there kind of look down on the, uh, some of the athletes, knowing that, well, not all, everybody on the football team really qualified, would qualify to get in here if they didn't play football. So, you know, that, that kind of happens at, at, at other schools, but not at Caltech. And, and that's a very, very unique thing. Not too many schools can say something like that, if any, other than Caltech. Um, you know, they were once rivals with um, UCLA and USC, they were in the same conference. Mm-hmm. Um, they started the conference together, and USC and UCLA went off to um, bigger things. They wanted to be that type of athletic school, 
and Caltech didn't. Caltech wanted to be a science and math school, mm-hmm. and they still wanted to keep their athletics, but not at that expense. And, and I think that's part of what you're saying with the football team. That's true for um, you know, basketball. There's been um, you know, a loss to Caltech has gotten – in fact, there's a game that uh, the Caltech lost in overtime, and the coach was still so distraught or his athletic director was so distraught that he either got fired or was asked to resign, and he won the game. But that, that's, you know, that's what it means to another program to lose or have a close game with Caltech, that something must be wrong. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of funny, but at the same time, that's sort of, uh, you know, that's a little insulting to what they do at Caltech, and it, it really shouldn't be that way. And that's why I have, uh, you know, Greg Popovich from the Spurs. He actually lost to Caltech in 1980, and he ended their 10-year losing streak but he's in the film, and he goes on record, you know, and, and he's really upfront about it. He was like, you know, it was horrible at the time, but it's a great life lesson, a great experience, and look where he is now. He's won four NBA championships, so he turned out okay. <laughs> well, congratulations again to the team for finally winning a game, and, of course, thank you for timing it to coincide with our 10-year anniversary. We really appreciate that. Well, this has been the Grok Science Show 10-year anniversary. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.